You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Well, I very much appreciated Midori's sharing with us. I asked her if she'd preach the sermon tonight, and she said no. But she reminded us that God can use broken vessels, and that is the truth. The fact of the matter is, God doesn't have any other kind of vessels to use, and uh, those who don't think that they're broken vessels are just broken in a different way. (laughs) But that is the good news. Well, David Getz, uh, an author, wrote a book called Death by Suburb. A little extreme as a title, but he quotes from a Columbia University professor and uh, urban historian named Kenneth T. Jackson. Dr. Jackson writes, The space around us, the physical organization of neighborhoods, roads, yards, houses, and apartments, sets up living patterns that condition our behavior. Think about that. What he's saying is the arrangement, the physical arrangement of our living habitations actually patterns our behaviors and even our beliefs. I don't know if this is something that's unique to suburbia, uh, but this is the focus of Getz's book, and he gives his readers a list of uh, seven dangers that he sees in American suburbia today. That is, seven belief patterns that tend to emerge as a result of the way we are living in the neighborhoods of American suburbia in the 21st century. And I just want to read them to you. It's kind of interesting. The first one is this. I am in control of my life. That's one of the myths of suburbia. I am in control of my life. The second one Getz gives us is, I am what I do and what I own. That's me, that big shiny SUV in the driveway. I am what I do and what I own. Uh, Three, I want my neighbor's life. Four, my life should be easier than it is. Isn't that? Five, I need to make a difference with my life. It's kind of pressure achievement. Uh, And then six, my church is the problem. Let's move on to the next one. Seven, what will this relationship do for me? See, these seven, I don't know if I'd call them quite creeds, but just assumptions of our life may in fact be shaped by the way we uh, interact with each other, with our neighbors, with the streets, the sidewalks, etc. And... uh, um, It's true that culture shapes our understanding. That over time, without us even giving the process much permission, consciously, we begin to think differently about our identity, about our value, and about our purpose in life. Because of our culture. It just starts to conform us or shape us. Now, the influence... Uh, of a process like this is recognized by the Bible. We see it discussed in several places. For example, in Romans 12, uh, verse 1, uh, the Apostle Paul says, and this is, I like the translation of J.B. Phillips, Uh, Paul says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. 
See, what Paul is saying is that there's an influence in the world around you. It's trying to conform you. It's trying to shape you. It's trying to mold you. It wants to produce you in its own image. And it's constantly happening. But it doesn't have to happen. And that's the good news of the gospel. See, I mean, Paul wouldn't say, don't let it happen, if he didn't know it was possible for it not to happen. And he knows exactly why it is possible for any human being alive to resist the conforming influence of uh, social pressures. And, and the source of that resistance is the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. Paul's just spent the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans describing with great elegance the good news of Jesus Christ. And just take his resurrection, for example. The good news of Jesus Christ in his resurrection is that there is no influence greater than the influence of Jesus Christ in your life. There isn't anything. He has power over sin and death. He is supreme. So there's no other influence uh, over your life that's greater than the influence of Jesus Christ. And that is good news. The other thing, take the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ can convince us that no matter how much rebellion there is in our lives, we will never be able to outdistance the love of God. We can't imagine its height or depth or width, and we'll never find ourselves beyond its reach. God loves us so much. That's what the cross says. So this is the good news, and it is the good news of Jesus that gives us the freedom to be who God wants us to be. And not to have to capitulate to the mold of our neighborhoods. So I think Getz is right when he says, you know, it's not that I need to escape the suburbs. It's that I need to find Jesus here. And that's the truth for us tonight. We need to find Jesus here, right where we are. And our text this evening is a rich uh, and, frankly, humorous uh, tale and an invitation for us. How can we find Jesus right here in our neighborhood? So let's open up to Acts chapter 12. Uh, and you find that page 896 of the Pew Bible. I'd actually invite you to keep the Bible open this evening because we're just going to walk through this text uh, together. It's a wonderful story. But let's first stand, if you're able, and we'll read the first five verses aloud together. That's Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. And when we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. So that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word. About that time, King Herod laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. He had James, the brother of John, killed with a sword. After he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the festival of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison and handed him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. While Peter was kept in prison, the church prayed fervently to God for him. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Well... David Getz gave us seven great dangers. Luke gives us one. One great danger in the neighborhood of Jerusalem, and that danger has a name, and that name is Herod. It's a well-used name in the New Testament. There are actually several 
Herod's. But no doubt, Herod is the threat to life in Jerusalem. And Herod is on a venture to try to conform this neighborhood. See, there are these pesky followers of Jesus who just come out of nowhere all of a sudden. And he just assumed they didn't. And so he wants to conform them, let them be just like everybody else in Jerusalem. That's his mission. Now, his toolkit is rather limited, but quite compelling. Uh, this Herod, by the way, is Herod Agrippa I. And uh, Herod Agrippa I rules from AD 41 to 44, brief tenure in Palestine. He is the grandson to Herod the Great, the most famous of all the, the Herods, who you may recall was the one who slaughtered the innocent babies, trying to stamp out this messianic uh, birth that he hears rumor of. And, and, and Herod Agrippa I is the nephew of Herod Antipas, who is the Herod that is known to us as the one who beheaded John the Baptist and the one who tries to entertain himself with Jesus' magic, as he sees it, and who presides over Jesus' crucifixion. You get the idea that this is a family that has um, a, a, a rich tradition of bloodlust and of employing the sword to get what they want uh, accomplished in the world. They rule by threat of death. Now, this Herod, not to be outdone by uh, his uh, forebears, has laid violent hands, we read in verse 1, upon some who belong to the church. He's arrested them. And uh, among them is James. You remember James? He's the brother of John. He's uh, one of the first apostles that Jesus calls to himself. And Herod Agrippa has taken James and he has beheaded him. Uh, the second martyr we read about in the book of Acts. And now he's gone up the ranks and he's got Peter. Peter. The preeminent of all apostles, the leader at this time in the church of Jerusalem. Herod has him arrested. He takes him into custody, probably uh, the uh, Antonia Fortress. There was a great um, military garrison right on the northwest corner of the temple itself. The Romans had built this so that they could uh, spy on the Jews as they were doing their religious and cultural activities in the temple. And it all straddled also into the city of Jerusalem. And right there, and you can, if you go to Jerusalem, you can see its foundations and maybe you've seen models. It's likely where they've got uh, Peter arrested. But they have him watched by four squads of four soldiers who would uh, take three-hour watches. Herod's not taking any chances with Peter. And uh, Peter was chained between uh, two of them. Another two were posted at the uh, door to this inner cell. And then beyond that, confining all, is a great iron gate. Locked shut. And... Herod, we read, plans to have Peter uh, executed. So, he's trying to bring the neighborhood into conformity, but I want to ask you a question. Do you see Herod as the cause or the effect of this conformity? Why do I say that? Well, there's something interesting that we know about Herod Agrippa I, and that is he tried to overcome the fierce reputation of his forebears by ingratiating himself to the Jews. 
in Jerusalem. Well, Herod was no Jew. He was uh, an Idumean, a nation to the south. And when he was in Rome, he was a cultured Roman elite. But when he was in Jerusalem, he put on Judaism like it fit him snug. And he, he would go through the rituals and the cultural practices of the Jews. And he wanted very much to be admired by them, to be empowered by them. And we get a hint of this in verse 3 where Luke tells us, the author of Acts, after Herod saw that his killing James pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. See, he's got a compulsion to please his people. That's how he stays in power. And there's an interesting little tidbit from the Mishnah, Jewish writings, that preserve um, the memory of what Agrippa would do for the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is interesting. The Feast of Tabernacles comes every year, and uh, the Jews would have a bit of Deuteronomy read. And it was supposed to have been read by the king of Israel. Of course, we're under Roman occupation. But here, Herod Agrippa I fancies himself the true king of Israel, or at least he hopes others will see him that way. And so he reads the scroll that the king of Israel is supposed to read, but there's an embarrassing moment in that text, legislation for Israel's kings, and one of its prescriptions is that there should never be a foreign king over Israel. And so this is awkward for Herod to read this in front of all the crowds. But he does, and this is how the missionary records uh, uh, the scene. It says, King Agrippa received it. Now, that's the scroll of Deuteronomy. Standing. And read it standing, which shows respect. So when we stand for the reading of God's word, he did that. And for this, the sages praised him. And when he reached, now here's the tricky part. And when he reached, thou mayest not put a foreigner over thee, which is not thy brother. His eyes flowed with tears. Because he was not Jewish. But they called out to him. This is the crowds of worshipers. They called out to him, Our brother thou art. Our brother thou art. Our brother thou art. Isn't that interesting? And Herod just loved that. He loved that. He would do anything. So let me ask you, who is conforming to whom? Now the, the influencing power of the neighborhood is shaping Herod. Agrippa the first. And it is compelling him compulsively to do what he does as he plans to martyr Peter. It's a danger in the neighborhood. So let's move on and see where the church begins to find its resistance to this conformity. In verse 5, we read, While Peter was kept in prison, the church prayed fervently uh, to God for him. Okay, so prayer. Prayer is where we find our resistance. And Luke's audience already saw it coming before I did, perhaps before you did. Because the way Luke tells the story, there's a hint in the timing, first of all, of this thing. See, Luke wants us to note with irony that Herod plans to dispatch Peter just after the Passover. Now, hmm, the Passover. Does anybody remember that story and what it's all about? we got a bad king, a pharaoh who has enslaved people and is holding them captive. And the people under duress cry out to God in prayer. And the book of Exodus notes, God heard their prayer. And he sets the people free. And after the Passover, there's not much really good that happens for that particular Pharaoh. right? So it's ironic. But it was in prayer that Israel finds their freedom. 
Not only Israel, but our Lord Jesus Christ himself. And Luke makes subtle allusion to this fact in verse 5, where we read, The church prayed fervently to God for Peter. Now that adverb, fervently, uh, means stretched out. And it could speak of the duration of the church's prayer, but I think more likely it speaks to the posture of prayer, with hands stretched out, imploring God to involve himself and to deliver. In fact, Luke only uses this word fervently one other place in both uh, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and that is in describing Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating as he prays so intensely what appear to be drops of blood and saying, uh, God, deliver me from this. But not my will, but thine. And so Israel finds its freedom in prayer, and Jesus finds his freedom to be the Son of God and to be faithful in prayer and to resist whatever powers and forces come against him. And so likewise, now we find that the church is praying in the same way that Jesus had prayed fervently for Peter. And it is this, it is this that will bring about freedom for Peter. So let's see how the story continues. I'm going to read the next section, uh, verse 6. The very night before Herod was going to bring him out, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers while guards in front of the door were keeping watch over the prison. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He tapped Peter on the side. It really, it's, he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his wrists. The angel said to him, Fasten your belt and put on your sandals. He did so. Then he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Peter went out and followed him. He he did not realize that what was happening with the angel's help was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. After they'd passed the first and the second guard, they came before the iron gate. There it is, the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went outside and walked along a lane when suddenly the angel left him. And then Peter came to himself and said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hands of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Freedom. I mean, the first evidence of freedom is, I think, the slumber of Peter in that dark pit of death. I think of myself, how often I wake up 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. and My mind is just racing with the turmoil of the prior day. Or I'm wringing my mental hands about what could go wrong about the day tomorrow. And I just can't get back to sleep. But here's Peter. How many people do you imagine on the eve of their execution sleep a wink? And he's so sound asleep. It's like the angel's got to give him an elbow. It's got to strike him to wake him up. Come on, Peter. We want to rescue you. And Peter, it's as though he awakens from the dead. The angel says, arise. It's a resurrection. And some of us have been in that place. Midori described it well. It just feels like we're in the bottom of a pit. But here is inner freedom right there in the bottom. But there's more than inner freedom uh, for Peter. There's a very visible Very external freedom that's about to happen. I mean, he thinks it's a dream. It's so marvelous. But in fact, it happens without any struggle at all. This is the quietest, most peaceful jailbreak you have ever heard. 
I mean, the, the chains just drop from his wrists. The guards pay no attention. I don't know what's going on with them. He just gets up and he follows this angel and just walks right out. And then, of course, they come to the door and, you know, you might expect dynamite or a shoulder or a dramatic command or something like that. Open. There's none of that. It just swings open. Of its own accord, Luke says. No problem. And out he goes. Now, how does this all happen? I mean, what's really going on here? Well, I think that Peter himself tells us, and I love this here in verse 11. First, he doesn't know what's going on. But then he summarizes for the reader what's happened. He says, now I'm sure it's the Lord. Jesus himself has sent his angel and rescued me, listen to this, from the hands of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Remember the hands in verse 1? Peter had been taken in the violent hands of Herod, but now Peter's saying the Lord has superintended, has trumped the authority of Herod himself and has lifted me out of his hands. And it is the Lord who is lifting me out of the expectations of the Jewish people, those sociological pressures that were working uh, on Herod, that are working on the church. So it's the Lord who's come and simply lifted me above them all. He, He sees now that he's in the Lord's hands. I actually think of it this way. I think that... Peter understands that God has come into the Jerusalem neighborhood and lifted him to the heavenly neighborhood where now he is embraced in the safe and loving communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I want to say to you, whether you realize it or not, that's what happens when you pray. You and I are lifted up into the sweet communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Andrew Murray makes the point, you could never pray and expect to influence God if he were just one and not three. Apart from the Trinity. The Trinity is such a key doctrine for, for our prayer lives. Andrew Murray was the 19th century uh, Scottish missionary sent to South Africa. And uh, God used him for revival. He knew something about prayer. And here's what he writes. He says, if God were only one person, shut up within himself, there could be no thought of nearness to him or influence on him. But in God... There are three persons. When the Father gave the Son a place next to himself as his equal and his counselor, he opened a way for prayer and its influence into the very inmost life of the Trinity itself. Jesus says, uh, speaking to the Father after he had prayed aloud in his earthly ministry, I knew, Father, that you always hear me. See, Jesus' prayer, Murray writes, is the link between the eternal asking, the eternal asking of the only begotten Son in the bosom of the Father and the prayer of Christians on earth. In the bosom of the Trinity, nothing is ever done without prayer. The asking of the Son and the giving of the Father. Nothing is ever done. See, he's picking up what we read about in the second psalm. Do you remember the second psalm? Why the nations rage against me? And there's this one person who says, you know, it just makes me laugh. All these kings that try to assault me. And then he says to another person, you are my beloved son. Ask of me and I will give you the nations. And what Murray is saying is that between the father and the son, there is this eternal conversation, this eternal exchange of asking and giving. Asking and giving. And because there is that, 
And because the Father and the Son exist in the bond of the Trinity and have uh, the Holy Spirit and have shared the Holy Spirit with us, we can ask. And the Spirit will take our prayers and bring them up into the prayers of the Son who then sets them before the Father. See, and Peter's saying, I think this is happening to me. I think I've been lifted by God up into this heavenly neighborhood. And there's no freedom like that, no matter where you are or what's happening to you. Well, the interesting thing is, though, that while Peter understands he has been set free, the very people who have been praying are not free. This is, this is the real humor in the text. Let me, let me read this final section, verse 12. As soon as Peter realized this, that he'd been saved and rescued by Jesus... He went to the house of Mary. Remember Mary, her house in Jerusalem, the upper room. Uh, um, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, uh, where many had gathered and were praying. These were the people praying now for Peter. This is the other scene. This is what's happening while he's in prison. And, and he arrives. When he knocked at the outer gate, a maid named Rhoda came to answer. Very interesting, by the way, that uh, Luke wants to give us Rhoda's name. Luke has great respect for women in ministry. And Rhoda's like Mary discovering the empty tomb. He wants us to know who she is because she's the one who responds to the knock on the door. He also has great uh, hope for the least and the lowest in society, like uh, uh, Elizabeth. And So here's Rhoda. And she comes to the gate to answer. And on recognizing Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the gate, she ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the gate. She forgot to open it. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. The Greek says, you're nuts. Okay. But she insisted that it was so. And then they're condescending. They said, it's his angel. And meanwhile, Peter continued knocking. Hello? <laughs> This is the guy you're praying for? I'm here. It worked. And when they opened the gate, they saw him and were amazed. He motioned to them with his hand to be silent. They're so amazed. It's like breaking out in joyful worship. And he described for them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he added, tell this to James. This is a different James. This is James, the brother of Jesus. He'll become the leader in Jerusalem now. And to the believers. And then he left and went to another place. Okay, do you catch this? The iron gate is open, but the wooden gate on Mary's house is closed. And Peter can't get it open. I mean, you see the irony of that? I, I just think wherever Peter went, he loved to tell this story, and they must have laughed. This must have been a gut splitter at every dinner party that he went to. He goes, yeah, you know, I was in the Antonio Fortress, iron great guards and everything, and it just opened like that. I mean, you didn't have to breathe on it of its own accord. And then I went across the city, and I couldn't get, even get into John Mark's house. I was banging on the door. God can open the iron gate of Herod, but no one can open the wooden gate of Mary. You know, Jesus taught us that we were to knock in prayer persistently till we got our answer. He never taught us that sometimes our answer would knock persistently on the door until it was recognized. You're going to love to tell that story. It just makes no sense. What is it that keeps them from opening the door to the redemption on their doorstep? Well, I think it's the same things, that, three things that keep us from responding to the redemption that's happening all around us every day. Fears, distractions, and expectations. Fears. They're afraid. Obviously. 
It's a dangerous neighborhood, right? It conforms you. I mean, there's a Herod, and it didn't go so well for James, and now Peter's gone. Okay, let's keep the door locked, and let's get into the upper room as far away as we possibly can. We're afraid too. Distractions. I love Rhoda. She's so sweet. But look, she gets distracted. The very thing that she wishes to celebrate when she runs to her friends, she leaves behind. She's throwing a party for Peter. and Peter's not even in the house. How often do we do that with Jesus? We run into worship and, and, and our piety and we forgot to invite Jesus to the party. We just get distracted. Something important's happening. Worship or whatever. Fears, distractions, and expectations. They obviously did not expect Peter at the gate. And I'm not even sure they were praying for Peter's deliverance. Right? There's nothing to lower your expectations around prayer like prayer that isn't answered the way you think it should be. And i got to believe they had prayed for James, brother of John, and he was killed. And now, you know, once you go into the Antonio Fortress under Herod, you never come out. So let's pray for, for peace, for Peter. So let's pray for, I don't know, that the food's not too bad, that whatever God you want to do for him, you do. We really don't have anything to ask of you. Low expectations. And so when he comes to the door and Rhoda says, it's Peter, he's alive. They go, man, I don't know what you're smoking, but he's not there. And they come up with a kind of a, a concoction that's even more ridiculous than the truth. I mean, it is hard to believe. It's an amazing story. But they come up with this first century superstition about a guardian angel. And, and you know, if there were an angel at the door, would you say, ah, let him go. He'll come back. You know, I mean, it's like, what, what's up with that? It makes no sense. Well, our fears... Our distractions and our expectations do not make sense to us. And Luke wants us to understand that. See, these are the dynamics of the neighborhood. The church, the church has absorbed these things in the neighborhood. You and I have absorbed these things. Our neighbors have absorbed these same things. It's the culture of the neighborhood. So, in effect, what's happening here, and I'm thinking of the Gospel of Luke and the Good Samaritan, this parable that Jesus tells, right? There's a man who's lying hurt on the road, but the Levite and the priest, they walk around. Why? Well, they're afraid. I could get mugged. They're distracted. i got to get to the temple. And they have low expectations. I mean, what would happen? How could I help anyways, right? But it takes a Samaritan, a good Samaritan who comes to say, i got time. Let's see what would happen. I'm not afraid. And he finds the heart of God. He finds the heart of God and... Jesus says he becomes a neighbor in that moment. I actually think, though it's literally Peter knocking on the door, I actually think it's as though it were Jesus knocking on the door. Because Peter's there because he's seen the Lord. Peter is a witness to the presence of Jesus Christ in that neighborhood. And so through Peter, Jesus is knocking on the door. And I think that probably John, at the end of his life, when he's lifted up in the Spirit and he has this vision Maybe this is the imagery in the back of his mind. Jesus knocks on the door. Revelation 3.20. Behold. Behold. Listen. I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. And Jesus is knocking on our door too. The gate that opens of its own. The gate that God opens is the gate to our captivity. We are free. Tonight we are free. But the gate that you and I must open is the gate that opens to the work of God, to the work of Jesus in our neighborhoods. It's that work that brings us joy and astonishment and celebration. 
Jesus said, I'm knocking on that door. I sought so badly to invite you into this reality. I want you to see it. I want you to live it. I want it to be a blessing to the people around you. And so he's knocking. He's knocking. This is what prayer really is about. Prayer is not invoking Jesus. Prayer is Jesus invoking and inviting us into what he's doing around us. Well, I want to I want to close with the, uh, an example of this from another church. A church not unlike ours in many respects. A, a Bel Air Presbyterian church, where many of you know I served for five years, uh, was started by a young man named Louis Evans Jr. You may remember Hollywood Presbyterian Church, where Henrietta Mears had such a fruitful ministry for so long. And um, the pastor of that church was Louis Evans Sr., Hollywood Presbyterian Church. And they said, you know, we have a great opportunity to minister in our neighborhood, but we're just not close enough to UCLA, so we're going to start a new church uh, over by UCLA. And they sent the pastor's son, Louis Evans Jr., and Louis Evans Jr. is all studied up, and he's got a strategy, he's got a three-prong, three dimensions to this, and they were all ready to go. And I, I'm, I'm, re- I'm going to read to you from an article, I think it was 1963, you know, and he's being interviewed about how God did this. And he said, well, yeah, the three strategies. We had those, and the interviewer admiring takes note of them. But he, Evans has to say, with all honesty, there was really a fourth dimension, the most important dimension, and he talks about that. He, he says, um, as the word of God was taught to these men and women, they responded readily to it. Theirs was not simply theological acceptance, but a practical demonstration in worship and devotion. Then an astonishing thing began to happen. The Holy Spirit introduced a fourth and exciting dimension which we had not quite anticipated. Our people began to see that one of the first commandments of Christ was love. And as they allowed him to demonstrate his love through them, They began to exhibit a concern and compassion for their friends that was truly remarkable, said Evans. The first evidence of this was their desire to see their friends share their newfound faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Out of this concern came additional conversions to Christ. But this was not all. Although these young believers had acquired more material possessions than they needed, many of them suffered a spiritual poverty. There were alcoholics and those suffering from physical ailments. As they read their Bibles, they became obedient to it. And when the word said, and he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick, Luke 9, they assumed this is what they were to do. And they did it. And God honored their prayer. And people who had gone through surgery in several instances exhibited phenomenal recovery, astonishing their physicians. On other occasions... Physical ailments yielded to prayer alone in an amazing fashion. This is how we got here as well. Someone at First Press Seattle said, we need to be closer to the University of Washington. We need to be there in that neighborhood. And behind that is the Lord Jesus Christ who has set us all in our neighborhoods, wherever we live our lives. We are on assignment to give witness, to point out, to observe the presence of Jesus Christ and his neighborhood at work around us. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for this incredible story. This incredible story of how Jesus continues to do and to teach what he began to do and to teach in the gospel, and what he continues to do and teach in our day as well. 
We thank you for the good news that sweeps us into your love, that claims us as your own. We are your people. We rejoice in that fact. We thank you for the good news that not only are we your people, but we're surrounded by your people. For you love every single person. You love our neighborhoods, and you're at work in them, and you send us out in them. So, Lord, hear our prayers. Hear our prayers for those in our midst who need your healing touch tonight. Hear our prayers for our brothers and sisters who are away at family camp. Lord, heal them and bless them as well. Hear our prayers for our neighborhoods, near and far. Lord, we pray for those who are devastated or braced by natural, bracing for natural disasters. Lord, we pray for those through whose streets ring echoes of sniper fire and the rumble of tanks. Lord, bring your peace. Bring your freedom to this planet that you love. And Lord, now we set apart our tithes and offerings, whether it's the widow's mite or the king's treasure, and we come to lay it at your feet and ask that you take these things as you take all that we are, and you commission them and go with them through the power of the Holy Spirit to do that work of peacemaking in the world. In the name of Jesus Christ, whom we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.